Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone. I'm Ikresh Gustachima, your host for the New Books Network. Today, we will talk with Dr. Sadia Sombol about her book, Islam and Religious Change in Pakistan, Sufis and Ulama in 20th Century South Asia, which was published by Rutledge in 2022. Thank you so much for joining me today, Sadia. Thank you, Rao. Thanks for organizing this talk, and thank you to New Book Network for giving me an opportunity to share my work. Great. So could you please introduce yourself and your work to the audience? Yeah, um, I'm uh, working as associate professor in uh, Psychology University, Lahore, uh, in the history department. And this is my, this this book is based on my uh, PhD dissertation. Um, it's um, the big story in the, in the book is um, conflict between shrine-based sophistic practices and sharia-oriented textual traditions. And um, it investigates the process of contestation in the combination of, you know, the, the two facets of Islam and their proponents, uh, the Brevis and the Bandis, through a case study of a district. I've taken a, um, a case study, um, which is uh, Miyawali district in the northwest of Punjab. Um, I've studied that how Islamic reformism came to be established in in this region where, uh, you know, Sufism was historically grounded. Um, and um, the, for the Ubandi Islams, um, is, I mean, the, the Ubandi Islam faced a lot of challenge in such a situation where Sufism is so strongly embedded. So uh, how the Ubandis articulated their reformist agenda, and to what extent they asserted themselves. Um, I mean, sometimes they attacked shrine-oriented traditions um, with extreme puritanism, and sometimes they had to negotiate and adapt the shrine-based traditions. So my argument was that reformist ideas could find space uh, in this region only after accommodating Sufi courts and practices. I mean, they could not outrightly reject all shrine-oriented practices. Um, so there existed a, you know, a, a dialectical relationship between reformist Islam and traditional Islam. Sometimes they intercepted, sometimes they accommodated each other. Um, now this conflict between Islamic reformism and Sufism, um, which unfolded itself in the colonial period and then it changed in its relationship to one another and shifted into a more hostile um, engagement with the state in the post-colonial Pakistan. So in this conflict, the two central issues of opposition to Ahmadiyya and enforcement of Sharia at state level were added into this conflict. And they this con- these two conflicts, I mean, the, the conflict uh, with the Ahmadiyya and the enforcement of Sharia at state level these brought new elements to the discourse of authority. So, I mean, what we see in the post-colonial era is 
that there are much hardening of boundaries between the two denominations. Thank you for sharing these details. So how did you get interested in the project? How did the dissertation start and how did it turn into the book? Well, um, um, you know, there are um, two reasons for why I picked up this district because I, I've done a case study. There was one academic reason and one non-academic reason. The academic reason was that the non-academic first is that this is my hometown. And uh, I found wealth of material, which was consisting of geographical literature and uh, archival sources, which were, um, and the, the district um, was an epicenter of uh, reformist movement in the colonial era, um, a very uh, famous um, movement of Abdullah Chakrabi, the uh, Anul Quran movement, also initiated from this small district. Uh, in the post-colonial um, period, there were also reformist movements. Uh, one was um, um, launched by Walana um, Alayar uh, Chaknalbi, which was a very important movement. So I, I wanted to study these phenomena, but, but why this district, which is on the periphery of Punjab, uh, was the hub of so many, so many uh, reformist movements. And um, the, this district was actually a, a border district that lies at the crossroad of Punjab and Northwest Frontier. So today is Khyber Pakhtunkhwa. And it became a point of convergence of, you know, these cross-cultural and religious currents and this, uh, a site of resurgent um, reformist movement, uh, reformist religious impulse. So it was important to see that how Punjab's pluralistic and composite culture changed with the emergence of reformist and revivalist movements, which resulted in, um, you know, um, forging distinct religious identities and um, religious nationalism, which sharpened communal identities. So, so this reformist movement became a boundary-making phenomenon in Punjab, uh, where syncretic traditions were common. And um, so um, Islam's modern transformation, um, which is generally seen either in doctrinal abstraction, I mean, we, we see that it as, as high Islam or at larger scale, um, but both handles miss social gaps on the ground that shape religious change in any given setting. So when you are working on trajectories of modern Islam or the reformist movement, which originated from North India, um, it gave ulema a status of, an important status, uh, a status of custodian of Islam. And, and that helped them uh, in establishing the Islamic reformism. So the nature of religious change was different at larger level. So I tried to link this micro to macro level in order to analyze, you know, the, the, the different processes of contestation and negotiation that led to this outcome. Because in my case study, the you know the Islamic reformism um, came to be established in the region where Shine focused Sufism remained very dominant, and it was closely linked to. Um, local tribal and political structures. So in this hierarchical tribal rural structure of Islam, which uh, gave them identity um, of their collective self, ulama were conceived 
as outsiders. And they met a lot of resistance from the Sufis. So this placed Ulema on social parapets during colonial era. So it was important to, to study and to understand that how in such a situation the reformist Islam came to be established here. So this, this was, uh, I mean, the reason why I, I picked up this and um, tried to link the micro to macro level. Very, thank you so much for sharing that. And with the Sufi-based Islam, Shrine-oriented Islam. Um, I treat my book as uh, a first research on the contestation of modernity and tradition in colonial Punjab. Even not much work has been done on Punjab. Um, as I said, that it generally they have done one, um, uh, they have studied this phenomenon of contestation and accommodation at higher level, at larger level in North India. Um, and um, my one starts from the colonial Punjab and then it ranges over the period of post colonial Pakistan. Now, as you know, that Punjab was steeped in local customary Islam based on sophistic ecos and shrine oriented religiosity. Um, uh, which is identified with Bareilly denomination, well entrenched in Punjabi uh, religious landscape. So now the debate centered on the question of conflict and divide between, you know, mystical and legal traditions in Islamic law or Sharia and Sufism. So, you know, this book contests these binaries and view them as rooted in much older Orientalist dichotomy between, you know, scholar and Sufi. Um, because Orientalists draw a contrast between, uh, you know, the reformed Dilbandis and, uh, you know, uh, unreformed uh, Barabis. So um, this book contests this approach through which Dilbandi Barabi controversy is seen through binaries like legal, mystical, inclusivist, exclusivist, reformist, and tradition. Um, my argument is that this is a distorted binary construction. The real fault lines between the Bandis and Banabis have mostly to do with the, you know, the divergent view on the concept of prophetology. Because, you know, this conflict um, and the, the, the debate on, on, on this conflict but revolves around the concept of partial and impartial powers of Prophet that is called Kulli and Juzdi powers. Um, Dobandis have seen Sufism as an essential part of uh, Muslims' moral life, which is inseparable from Islamic legal norms. Uh, but they reject those popular practices which are associated with local shrine-based Islam. So they they like they sought to reorient Sufi practice um, around an ethics of self-transformation, not um, um, you know, you know, based on the um, veneration of saints around their virtues, not around their miracles. So uh, my assertion was that Sufism is a tripartite phenomenon. There are three dimensions of Sufism: literary, institutional and devotional. And these three are intersecting. They are mutually constituted. Uh, there are areas of convergence, there are areas of overlaps in the reform agenda of the Bandis, but there is no outright rejection of all 
So you cannot see this phenomenon of controversy and contestation uh, through the lens of binaries. Uh, this was my main assertion about uh, this conflict. Great. Thank you so much for sharing that, Sadia. So um, could you share some details about Theobandi and Brailleys and the different kinds of dichotomies among them? You already kind of talked about profitology. So could you specifically talk about their views on the profit and the, you know, considering the current crisis in Pakistan particularly? As I said that the real fault line between the Bandis and Bareilles had mostly to do with uh, their divergent views on the concept of profitology, which was ex explained by Ahmed Reza Khan Bareilles, who was a, a founder of Bareilles School of Thought. And uh, the ideology of profitology he discussed in his uh, very famous treatise, Hasamul Harman, which was published in 1903. And um, in, in, in that, he very clearly defines the idea of profitology that he calls Ahlus Sundar's concept of profitology. Um, and he says that, um, I mean, the main features of the concept of profitology are that the divine sovereignty was inseparable from the authority of the prophet as the most beloved of God's creation. Now, unlike him, the Bandis believed the prophet as insani kamil, which is a perfect human, um, and his, but his subservience to sovereign divine. Uh, and uh, the, the central architect of this Dubandi concept, this this idea of insani Kamel was a uh, 19th century Muslim reformer, thinker, Shai Ismail. The Dubandis were influenced by his ideas. And the, the difference seen on the question of prophets ontological exceptionality, you know, the Dubandis gave a lot of space to Sufim Paiji in their doctrinal orientation, but they considered um, you know, profit as not only the source of normative teaching, but a living presence. Whereas, counter to their argument, Ahmed Reza Khan Bereli argued that divine sovereignty was inseparable from profit and authority. Conflict was based on um, profit's knowledge of unknown, the unlimited knowledge of unknown, uh, ability of profit, uh, ability of seeing and being, this is called Hazir of Nazir, the that the prophet is alive in his grave and he can see and he can he can listen. Uh, the concept of Nure Muhammadi that he's created out of divine light and the concept of Shafat, the intercession, that he will intercede uh, on the day of judgment uh, with, with, with his ummah, with his followers. And Barelvi's, um, um, when Dubandis denied all these, concepts. Uh, so Bareilles, you know, they, they call them, declare them as Wahhabis. Now, Wahhabi is a term which Bareilles used pejoratively. It's very important to know that in, in South Asia, Wahhabi is a term which is used uh, pejoratively, contemptuously. The one who is a Badmas, the one who is not on the right track, who has wrong belief in religion. Is called as Wahhabi. Uh, otherwise, I mean, the Wahhabi is just uh, the one who is so follower of arch conservative reformer Muhammad bin Abdul Wahhab uh, of Saudi Arabia. Uh, and, you know, his followers were also called Muahidun because his idea of his, his theological thinking was based on Tawheed, mm -hmm. oneness of God. So 
his followers were known as Muahid. But here in South Asia, uh, the Wahhabi term was used to be the one who doesn't have the right or the correct beliefs. So at the heart of Bareilly theology existed a deep respect for prophet. And well, I, what I will uh, say that the, you know, these are the, the this conflict between uh, the Ubandis and Bareilly on the concept of prophetology is actually a, a, a competing understanding of relationship between God's sovereignty and prophet's authority. This created disagreement, you know. The Bravey defended all uh, devotional practices, rituals that venerated Prophet's memory. And these contrasting images of Prophet between the Ubandis and Bareilly became more explicit when um, the Uband opposed Sufism and uh, this Prophet orange. And in fact, there was, a, you can say that there's a hermeneutical conceptual difference on prophetology between the two denominations. So th they cannot be this hermeneutical difference between the two denominations cannot be translated as uh, binaries or divisions, but it should be, um, I mean, approached as contestation between competing rationalities of tradition and reform, uh, not as a, as a conflict um, between the two denominations. It's the competing understanding or concept of prophetology that created conflict. This is my understanding. Great. Um, how would you comment on the role of ulama in these debates? Sorry? How would you comment on the role of ulama in these debates? A contemporary or, you know, at that time, you bring in some of the scholars that have, like, um, talked about these ideas, introduced these ideas, and their followers... Um, but stick the wider conversation about like the role that ulamas or religious scholars play in the society in terms of these debates. Um, relationship um, between you know Islam state identity um, was a it remained a big question in public space in the post-colonial state of Pakistan because uh, you know the I mean there was. Um, visible resurgence of Islam in, in the context of identity formation um, that led to a growing range of activities of ulama in the public and religious spheres. Um, in the post-colonial state of Pakistan, ulama's role uh, was uh, politicized. It was the ulama were very politically active and the reason was uh, what I mean, what created a space for them in politics was um, the Objective Resolution 1949, which was passed, uh, which was a decisive step towards, um, you know, uh, Islamic, towards the establishment of an Islamic state. And it clearly defined um, who's a Muslim and who's not a Muslim. And, um, you know, it, it defined the clearly defined Muslim. So, this this drew a boundary between Muslim and non-Muslim, which intensified uh, or which, in fact, created an exclusion between um, an hostile environment between Muslims and non-Muslim citizens of Pakistan. Now, the reason was that when objective resolution was passed and Pakistan was declared as an Islamic state, so the national narrative of 
post-colonial state of Pakistan was built on Islam, Sharia Islam, reformist Islam, became the principal determinant of, uh, you know, national identity of state. So on behalf of state, the national identity was declared um, by, uh, by the, the, I mean, the state declared the national identity based on Sharia Islam. So this, this was the defining feature of, you know, reformist version. Uh, I mean, the propagation of religious exclusion, uh, this led to uh, sectarian differences. So objective resolution actually committed Pakistan to greater Islamization and Khatmin Abubat issue once again. I mean, Khatmin Abubat was an issue in the colonial days, but in the post-colonial state of Pakistan, it, it emerged as a more central issue. And uh, <clears throat> this uh, obviously gave Bulema wider space in politics for religious activism, first in the form of 1953 Khatmin and then in the form of 1974 Khatmin and in in this in these movements, I mean, what is important to understand to note note I mean, which I I figured out in my research that there was an emergence of aggressive Bareilliesism, Bareilli political activism in these movements, and um, you know the Bareilliesis had been um, actively participated in the electoral politics, and Bareilli Bareilli ideologues, you know, they they uh, they link the structure of localism politics with broader concept of Islamic community. They use the concepts like pan-Islamism and, um, you know, the, the greater Muslim uh, Islamic Ummah and Muslim community. Uh, so uh, these all jargons and these all, uh, um, you know, the, 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 the concepts that they used in politics, it's, it linked the structure of local politics with the broader concept of Islamic community first in British India and then in the post-colonial state of Pakistan. So, I mean, what was important to know that the religious change um, reflected as, as a result of Ulema's um, this overt uh, opposition to Ahmadiyya and opposition to uh, sophistic Islam, um, you know, the, the, the religious change reflected a narrowness of space for sophisticated ones within the Obandi circle. And it led to the hardening of boundaries between religious denominations in the post-colonial state of Pakistan. I mean, a state-led national narrative, which was based on Sharia-oriented Islam, replaced pluralist traditions with more exclusionary and, uh, you know, sectarian differences. So the relationship between Sufism and Islamic revivalism um, is, you know, put them in, in a dialectical process where um, we see more hardening of boundaries. And that was because of the, you know, the state's narrative, which was based on Sharia Islam, which gave um, ample space to ulema to get into politics. And uh, this whole situation had created, um, you know, the 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 conflict between the two denominations more intense uh, and forced uh, distinct religious categories and boundaries. Yeah, thank you so much for elaborating that. So how do these connections seep into the military constituencies and how do you think that affects the larger political or cultural climate? This I discussed in the, um, I think in the, in the fifth chapter of my book, um, it was, um, 
uh, the the military. Uh, this is about. Uh, I just want to give a brief uh, overview of uh, the the silsila that uh, you know seeped into Pakistan military, and this was uh, Nakshmaniya Messia Silsila, um, and it was linked with the Bandi the uh, Islam. Um, this was the time the Silsla was, uh, the ideologue of Silsla was Walana uh, Alayar Chakralbi. And um, uh, it was the military government of uh, Ayub Khan. This was 1962 when the Silsla was first uh, founded. And, uh, you know, as a uh, military government of Ayub Khan tried to control Islam through military, and, you know, they, they he tried to introduce a more modern version of Islam. And um, this actually helped the Silsla penetrate into the ranks of armed forces of Pakistan. Um, and uh, the institutional support of army constituency linked the Silsla to the center of power. Uh, now, the soldiers who were coming with the background of the rural customary Islam, they accept uh, the, the strictly inspired reformist message because the Silsla had a very, uh, it was an orthodox. Uh, the uh, which believed in a strict uniformity of Sharia than Tariqat. So it, you can say that this was a Sufi inspired Dubandi Silsla. And the Sufi inspired Dubandi Silsla had a greater appeal among the soldiers who were coming from the rural background. And um, because this, this Sufi inspired reformist message was became compatible with military government's agenda of reformulating a composite identity. You know, Ayub Khan um, uh, tried to, he, he he did not ally with the uh, Sufis or the ulema, but he um, he chose mysticism as, as a philosophy because mysticism in, as a philosophy is uh, devoid of politics. So he, that is why he tried to, um, you know, develop a modern version of Islam, which is closer to mysticism. And that is why, uh, you know, this Sufi-inspired in reformist message became compatible with the military government's agenda of uh, Islam as a composite identity. So the Silsla had its strongest expression in Pakistan during 1971 war. After the fall of Dhaka, you know, 93,000 Pakistani soldiers were imprisoned in, in many of the, uh, you know, Indian war camps. Uh, and one such prisoner of wasp camp was in Gaya, camp number 93, where a lot of soldiers who were followers of uh, of this uh, they were imprisoned and they established their Halkai Zikr within the camp and uh, um, you know the, he, the founder of the Silsila, Walana Alayad, called this uh, um, you know the, this uh, group of imprisoned officers as Jamaat Akhuvat Salihji. This was a name that he gave and he tried, I mean, Jamaat Akhubatu Salitin indicates that he tried to push brotherhood among them in this time of distress. So army as an influential client community, he linked the Silsila to the power structure. And Jamaat's message soon reached, you know, throughout the military belt because it was started from Chakwal. Chakwal was a military belt in the Salt Range area. And from there, the message reached from cantonment to cantonment. And um, since, uh, you know, um, at the Silsla, as I told you, that it had a very puritanical disposition. I mean, a strict uniformity of Shariat and Tariqat. So it drew a very clear line 
uh, between Islam and its constitutive other. Uh, the Silsila was very hostile towards Shia community. Uh, um, and, uh, you know, it, it, its missionary style, uh, plus its mystical substance, and then exclusionary streak, because it was puritanical. Um, being a Sufi inspired Silsila, it had very puritanical disposition. So this made it, these, with the combination of these things, like the Silsila's missionary style, and then the mystical substance, and exclusionary strains, so made it very complex. And uh, Jamal had a, had a strong appeal to ordinary Muslim, but due to its, uh, why it has a stronger appeal to ordinary Muslim due to its Sufi thoughts, due to its mystical message. But the way it espoused Sharia generated an exclusionary discourse. So you can, you can say that the impact of this is now outside the society. I mean, inside the military, it was, you know, the, the, the its impact was tremendous. But outside the society, uh, you can say that the Sufism's cultural sensitivity, its pluralistic traditions were placed against, you know, this essentialist, purifying logic of Islamic reformism. So this replaced syncretic traditions with more exclusionary sectarian in society. So outside in the society, the impact of this is now was um, um, yeah. division and strife and exclusive sectarian wedge that it created in the society. Thank you for elaborating that. How would you suggest that readers and academics approach this book or what research directions do you recommend for them? Well, um, I think um, when you're working on um, the different trajectories of modern South Asian Islam, um, more research is uh, required on um, social history of religion. Um, because, uh, you know, the, as I said earlier, that the focus of um, most of the scholars is on high um, Islam, the doctrinal Islam, or on the Islam or Sufism in the medieval age. Um, very less work has been done on the uh, to understand social history of religion. So while working on the trajectories of modern South Asian Islam, I think um, more focus um, of readers and writers should also be on the uh, local dynamics. Um, because it's, it's important to and know and understand that the impact of, for example, in case of my work, the impact of uh, this phenomenon of reformist Islam uh, was very different in the North India and uh, the, the nature of religious change in the 20th century Pakistan, um, the, you know, the situation was much different because um, the impact of this reformist Islam and the, as a result, the nature of religious change that emerged um, was um, much different from uh, what it was in the in 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 Durban or in India, North India, from where the reformist movement in, um, emerged, uh, because the you know the 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 situation is very different in the local when you 
come to the local dynamics at, at micro level. So I think um, my idea is that more research is needed on the social history of religion to understand the, the phenomenon of religious change uh, more deeply. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot for uh, this wonderful conversation, Sadia. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure.